expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Welcome to episode 161 of the Down and Nerdy podcast, where, you know, Nick and I are usually up all night because you never know, Nick, what can happen at the 11th hour. Yeah, so for people wondering what we're talking about, so this happened early Tuesday morning, East Coast time, about, what, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, Tuesday? And, of course, everybody knows that the WGA and the whole writer's strike it was threatening to happen, and what would have happened if they went on strike was, well, let's just say a lot of great television shows would be losing the writers due to the strike. But at the final hour, actually past the final hour because they had the extension, the WGA finally reached a deal for TV and film. And I got to tell you, some of the things that were highlighted in this new deal – are very important, especially in terms of how television here in America is going. Right, and you've got that 15% bump, which they were looking for as well, which is well-deserved after the last contract, which I believe was about 10 years ago. And then one of the most important things that you and I were talking about off the air were these limited series, and we know that there's a ton of them. Matter of fact, we're going to be reviewing one of them, American Gods, coming up uh, here shortly. You've got these limited runs that have shorter episodes, and they're actually going to get a different pay scale for that. They're going to actually start looking at those differently. And that's important because, again, we look at how America, how American television has kind of changed over the years in terms of we're starting to see shows go away from the 13-episode, outside of Netflix, of course, the 13, 22-episode seasons for most part and go more towards condensed 8- to 10-episode seasons. Uh, you'll get Legion, again, American Gods is eight episodes as well. And this is following in the footsteps of the British television where a lot of British series – are around eight to ten episodes, and so this is important because you know TV's currently involved. You know it's constantly evolving. You mentioned the last deal was about ten years ago. This deal apparently, I believe, is going to be about a three-year deal. I think um, so. Yeah, I think it was a three-year deal. Yeah. So I mean, you look at just what they're doing in terms of construction, in terms of television. There's going to be more. I mean, I think three years from now we're going to be there's going to be something new in television. You know, in terms of blocking and how. TV shows are released and everything like that and, and how many episodes they get. So, you know, hopefully we're getting towards more of an era where we don't have what we had 10 years ago where we had such a long, long writer strike. And especially when you go back to the movies that were released that summer, a lot of them were very much affected by the writer strike. So hopefully this is kind of the curtailing the ending of these, these strikes. And hopefully, you know, the writers get what they deserve and it looks like they did which I'm very happy for. I know you're very happy for. And, uh, you know, let's just go move forward and hopefully, you know, there's just easier negotiations going on as every uh, agreement uh, ends. Yeah, and there was way too much at stake here for this strike to happen. So I'm glad that everybody came up together and got this done. I mean, we were talking to uh, Arvind Ethan David, and he was saying, "Hey, I'm about I'm less than a week away from production starting on Dirk Gently, so I'm really hoping that (laughs) this comes through. And it did. You know, you tell him keep keep uh, faith alive and it actually went through so i'm glad for everybody involved and way to go to everybody involved for working into the night and getting it done because hey there there's just so much good stuff going on right now and i know that things are getting ready to change and who knows it could be all cord cutting by three years and then you got to renegotiate because ratings will be different and everything you got to renegotiate all over again so i think three years is probably a good way to uh to portion it out 
Well, James, we're happy that the writer's strike did not happen. But coming up next, we're going to talk about two other writers, of course, dealing with comic books as what we're reading is coming up next. Yeah, brother. This is Josh Segura, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's that time we pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, I know I kicked you in the ribs earlier last week because when we got this book sent to us, I said, I called dibs on this book. And no, you cannot read it. And then you gave me the whole kid in a checkout line. But I want to. I want it. I'll tell you what. I understand my son's perspective now when he throws hissy fits. When he wants (laughs) something and I won't give it to him. I I totally understand it. But I relented. I have not read a page of it. So why don't you tell the fine folks exactly what the hell we're talking about? Well, what the hell I'm talking about is DC Comics' Bane Conquest, a 12-part limited series. Part 1 of The Sword is now out. Of course, it's written by Chuck Dixon. The art's done by Graham Nolan. Now, if you're wondering, Chuck Dixon, Graham Nolan, those names sound familiar. Well, that's because those are two of the three creators of Bane himself. And, of course, Gregory Wright does the colors. Carlos M. Mangwell does the letters on this. And I got to say, this story, what this does... You want to talk about how Bane is one of the most biggest villains in Batman's mythos. And honestly, from this angle that they go with, he's kind of a protector in a sense of Gotham in this, but not really a protector. More of like an anti-hero, kind of like, kind of like he sees what's happening in this book is infringing on his power. And he says, I'm not going to let this happen. That's very, very interesting that they would decide to go that route because we've kind of seen Bane tiptoe here and there recently in the DC Universe, so it's it's interesting to see that that's the direction they're going to go with this. Now, I'm not saying that he is a good guy it's because his goal, is, of course, is to create a global criminal empire with the help of his original game, of course, talking about Bird, Trog, and Zombie. Now, here's the thing is that he's moving city to city in this and trying to take over you know, everything and be this this conqueror. So when I say that he's like an anti-hero, there's parts where you see him kind of go after other, I'll say rivals for lack of a better term. And he is just, the things he does in this man, like they will grab your attention. Uh, the way that he interrogates some people in this, holy hell. You want to talk about a guy who's ruthless? This is Bane to the T. And I just wanted to talk about the art real quick. The art in this is really good. I love Bane's look in this. The mask, it's a much... I mean, he's always had the luchador mask. This is much more of a luchador mask because his nose and his mouth are exposed. And he's not like this... I mean, we've seen kind of like in, in you know, other current Batman books where Bane is, is present, where he's not this over-hulking guy. He's just a very jacked guy. He's not very, like, incredible right. Hulk-esque. And that's what I like. And the art in, is, that's done with this by Nolan, I mean, everything from his his the, the tubes that have his venom going through them to the ports that the tubes go in, very detailed, very beautiful. You look at this book, the colors, they get, you know, it starts off on a rainy night, this book does, and it gets everything perfect you really get that feel that sense of a stormy night and there's just some things that bane does in this that will grab your attention there's let's just say severed limbs flying in certain parts and let's just say uh it's pretty uh pretty awesome i'm not gonna lie it's, it's pretty pretty awesome 
I mean, that kind of describes Bane, doesn't it? The, the stuff that'll grab your attention because he's been grabbing readers' attention since 1993, it seems like. You know, ever since he was created. I mean, one of the most iconic moments ever is when he breaks Batman's back, and, I mean, he just continues to keep grabbing your attention, I guess. And what this does in terms of the writing and what the writing in this book, and, of course, Chuck Dixon really, really gets a hold of and, and really puts a good emphasis on is, you know, we always talk about how cerebral Bane is and his attacks and everything else. Dixon does a good job of putting in panels where Bane might be by himself in a certain area or whatever, and he'll just snap or he'll have a flashback to him being in prison as a child and he'll just lash out. And you're like, okay, this guy, you know, his tactics and his whole breaking the bat and everything else. And then he's things that he's known for are very well calculated, there is still tons of flaws or some key flaws in his thinking, in his in his uh, psyche. And I like that a lot in this. That's really cool. So, I mean, do I even have to ask what the rating is on this? Oh, this is a definite pull for me. I mean, this is something where, you know, again, you want to talk about how this is a book dedicated solely to Bane. Now, I'm not going to lie, there is some... some References to the Dark Knight in this, but so far he's not the overpowering factor in this. He was, you know, this is a Bane book, at least from the first issue standpoint. He's not sharing a book with Batman or anything like that. This is a definite Bane center point of view book and it's it's an amazing read so it's a definite pull for me i'm glad that they decided to do that i mean obviously you know what universe he's coming from but that doesn't mean you need to bring in bruce wayne or batman for that matter into this book i'm glad that he can he's allowed to stand on his own so what'd you do this week i decided to do something that's not even coming out for another month actually because valiant's so excited about this new book and why wouldn't they be that they decided to give us an early look at secret weapons Number one, and yep, that's by Eric Heiser, the Oscar-nominated director and writer, of course. He's going to be doing this book, along with Raul Allen, who does the art, and Patricia Martin helps out as well. And what I like about this book is, I mean, if you you remember when we were talking about Book of Death, uh, about Livewire, and she was, you know, and her work with Gate and stuff like that. Well, now we're finally going to get Livewire to get her own spotlight. Now, you want to talk about a spotlight book for a character, this is kind of her spotlight, but she does share the spotlight a little bit, but that's with these outcasts. If you've read the the description of this book already, it deals with some outcasts from the Psyots program, and that means Toyo Harada and the Harbingers and stuff like that. So these are kind of, let's just say young people with powers that are a little bit unconventional. I don't want to actually give away any of these powers. They're unconventional, and it's not something you'd expect somebody to have a power for. Um, there's there's one in particular where one of the girls, Nicole, has a power where it's like, I guess that might come in handy, but you see it come in handy. You see her make it matter later on in the book, and that's, the, that's one of the cool things about this book is as they're kind of fumbling along, and there's a reason for that that, again, I don't want to, to give away here. As they're kind of fumbling along, you kind of start to see where, oh, yeah, I, you know, this is not just a reject power after all. You can actually see where that might come in handy. But I got to tell you, man, right off the bat, it's a really tragic story what ends up happening to these outcasts. So it's not just a, hey, your power sucked, so off you go. It's something much more than that. And I like that. I like that, you know, when you're dealing with a, a book that has powers and superhero beings, basically. I like that there's always that fallback. I liked books that have that, yeah, superpowers are cool and all, 
But there's certain negativities that surround those things and surround them as a whole. And I like that a lot. And I haven't read this book yet because, again, out of respect to you, I don't want to trample all over your review. <laughs> going back to this for a second, I'm going to say this just, just before I get more into this book. If you loved Stranger Things, you're going to love this book. I mean, it's not like a direct, oh, it's Stranger Things. It's absolutely not. It's very, very different. But the vibe is there. The vibe mm-hmm. is there in, in so many ways. And then, of course, you know, because it's the basis of this book, because this is a spoiler, it's in the description as well. It, it's when this group meets Livewire for the first time and how they meet her. And then once she, she reappears to them as well, there's a, the relationship vibe that they have together. It, you could tell right off the bat that it's going to be this very special vibe and this very special connection and what she's going to mean to them going forward. And in a certain way, I almost kind of feel like vice versa, because if you're a fan of the Valiant universe at all, you know, the history between Livewire and Toyo Harada as well. So it's not like there's no history there. And these, these kids being a part potentially of the Harbinger program gives it even that much more of a connection. So I like that. They, they definitely highlight that on this. And there is a race against time aspect in this book. There's plenty of action to go along with the drama that goes on in this book as well. There's a nice little mystery that we get right at the very beginning of the book. It's like, who is this person and and what are they doing and why are they trying to do this? And you're waiting for these certain familiar faces to pop up. Some of them do not, and that's a good thing because it makes you wonder, okay, well, if it's not this person, then who the hell is it? And if this isn't what's really happening, and what was said isn't what's really happening, what is it? Or is this it? There's just so many questions, but not in a bad way. This is in a good way. It makes you wonder where it's going to go next. It's like, again, referencing Stranger Things, when you're getting to the end of that episode and you go, holy hell, well now it could be this, where it could be this. You just don't know what direction it's going to go yet. And in this case, for a first issue, I think that's awesome. So i got to ask you, how's the art in this book? I mean, if you're a fan of the Valiant books anyway, you know Raul Allen, you know how great his art is. But if you're not, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, let me tell you, this guy excels at action sequences. But there's also other sequences as well, like when they're trying to get one of the rejects' attentions to try and, you know, to, to show him the way to, to the group. It's a very clever part of the book and the art in that is very is really really good especially in the facial expressions of like he oh i see what you're doing there kind of thing he really brings that out so a fantastic job by everybody involved the cover art just grabs you right off the bat as well i mean there's so many things to love about this book and i you know i'm trying to tiptoe around this as we usually try to do because i mean it's not even out until june so you've actually got a chance to go to your local shops now and pre-order this you've actually got a chance to pre-order it digitally as well should you do so and you really should because man this book's a definite pull for me and if this is the guy that's going to be in charge of the valiant cinematic universe as far as writing it and and showing it showing them the way if he wants to be the joss whedon of that universe i'm okay with that and that's going to do it for what we're going to become next we're going to once again step into the world of neil gaiman and we're talking about american gods on stars that's coming up next Hi, my name is Emily Andrus. I'm the showrunner and executive producer of Wynonna Earth TV series, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week, doing something a little bit different as we head to Eagle Point and Stars Network for our review of, as Nick said a couple minutes ago, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, an adaptation of the novel, of course. And Nick, uh, I think that's safe to say pretty strange happenings uh, outside and inside of Eagle Point. 
and inside various other places as well. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to, we'll get to that. Uh, I want to say this as somebody who who's read. And I didn't read the full American Gods, but I've seen a couple, read a couple issues from the comic book adaptation that's recently been put out by Dark Horse. The TV show, I feel, is much better than the comic book, and it's I think one of those. Some people say rare occasions because you know people are always hold those books tight to their chest. I think what Brian Fuller and Michael Green are doing is, is much, much better in terms of pacing from what we've seen with Neil Gaiman's work. Now, if you have read the comic, and of course I reviewed the first issue on the show uh, not too long ago, if you have read it, you will notice that that comic pretty, pretty, very, very close actually to what happens on the first episode of the show, at least the first two issues of the comic anyway. So, I mean, if you've read the comic, and of course if you've read the book, there's no surprises, but if you've read the comic, there's there's not as many surprises in here either. Now, the question is, is how do those two things translate? And I think you're right. I think that the show did a much better job on certain characters of, pre- of presenting them and putting them together. But there's one character in particular, and I saw that you mentioned this on, on your Twitter account, or it was Facebook or something, and that's Shadow Moon. Now, to me, Ricky Whittle, it's not his fault, I don't think. But at the same time, I felt like I got more out of who Shadow Moon is from the comic and a good insight into what's going on with him than I did on this show. Well, remember, this is the first episode, and even though it's only eight episodes for the season, it's going to be, I think, more of the onions going to be revealed. And I said this on my Twitter and on my Facebook. I said, you know, if you're somebody who has not read the books, you're going to obviously be confused by what's going on. And talking about Shadow Moon, of course, the whole story revolving around him getting out of prison early, his wife is dead, now he's about to be thrown and thrust into this world of these gods and everything else like that that's happening. And so looking at Ricky Whittle as as an actor, I don't think it was his fault. I think that the problem was that Shadow Moon is such an uncharismatic character, and when you put him around in, in scenes with Ian McShane's Mr. Wednesday and Pablo Schreiber's Mad Sweeney, who are highly entertaining and really grab the screen and really make you interested in the show. And then you have scenes where he's by himself and talk about Shadow Moon. You're kind of like, I want more Mr. Wednesday. I want more Mad Sweeney. I want more of those types of characters. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And and the reason I say that about the comic, too, is that I remember when I reviewed it, it was very interior monologue heavy with Shadow Moon before he even got out of prison. So you got a real good insight into what was going on in his mind, especially when he says, okay, you know, something's not right here. You know, something's off. And you get a nice insight into that as well that, that you don't really get as much on the show. And I mean, you even get more of, you get more of a low key Lysmith uh, as well. Who's played by Jonathan Tucker briefly in the first episode, you get more of him in the comic as well in their relationship, which I thought was kind of important as he was getting out of prison, but I mean, you guess I guess you kind of understand why Shadow Moon isn't the most charismatic dude in the world, based on what happened to him, you know, in prison, and then of course once he got out of prison as well. So you kind of get it, but at the same time, I absolutely agree. Mister Wednesday and Mad Sweeney, if you could get, I want, I almost want a spinoff now of just them. Right. It's like okay, <laughs> you know, American Gods, cool, but can I get more Mister Wednesday, Mad Sweeney, please? I mean, just the gif alone of Mad Sweeney drinking a beer and telling, you know, with signaling Shadow Moon, you know, come at me, bro, kind of a thing was was awesome. I mean, you could just watch that thing over and over again. But 
you know, just in terms of, of characters, again, when I talk about Shadow Moon and him being non-charismatic, I understand that his wife's dead. And here's the thing, too, and this is where I knew what was going with this. I mean, granted, yes, I did read the books. But when <laughs> you hear his wife say, oh, Robbie's coming over, we're playing your surprise party, I'm like, well, let's see. If you've watched enough porn <laughs> or just lived enough of a life... You know that when somebody's out of town and their best friend comes over, um, <laughs> deep dicking is about to happen. <laughs> There's going to be a surprise, all right, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I mean, it's just, uh, you can tell, like, yeah, this is happening, you know. But, I mean, overall, man, uh, I, I look at, at the show, and I like that it actually started off, you know, in that kind of coming to America setting where you get the Vikings and they're, you know, bringing the first God to America basically. And where they, when they first, you know, land and everything like that and just how brutal it was. I mean, I'm not going to lie. When you see the guy, that one Viking just walk up, get impaled with hundreds of arrows. I'm like, yeah. Okay, you have my attention. You yeah. have my attention now. Yeah, the fake blood budget on this show has got to be off the charts, or, or they blew it in the first episode. I'm not sure exactly which, but, uh, I mean, the gallons and gallons of it that was spilled just in this first episode alone. I hope they've still got some left for future episodes, because I'm, I'm fairly certain that we're not done. I, well, here's the thing about the blood, too, is that, you know, it had a very... If I could describe the blood in American Gods in the show at any level. It'd be like Evil Dead to light, basically. Uh, and, I mean, even that's a lot of blood. But the thing with the blood is, and the, the I kind of hope that it doesn't become too much like that in yeah, further shows. And not because of the gore factor, but because as somebody, again, as somebody who's worked on film sets, as somebody who's seen fake blood being made, who's made fake blood... There were times where you're getting these gushers of blood, and it looked almost Kool-Aid-esque, and it didn't look real. It didn't look uh, really that well done. It just looked like they did it for just, let's just do it more and more and more. Right, you know? and that's my point. Not that I've been around a whole lot of violently bloody battles in my life, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, that's not something I ever want to see. So, I mean, I agree with you, though. It looked very Kool-Aid-esque, looked very thin. It looked fake. Let's just let's throw it out there. And obviously you don't want it to be real either in the, in the actual you know portrayal of it. But at the same time, it's like, okay, if you're going to do this over-the-top kind of stuff, you got to make it look a little bit more real, even though none of this is steeped in reality when you have this tiny little thing jump on your face and it transports you into what almost looks like the matrix or something so this is clearly not based in any kind of actual reality but at the same time if you're going to do those realistic type things like with the fake blood you got to make it look a little bit better than that i would think yeah and so i mean i, I hope that maybe they'll tone it down a little bit because again it's not from a gore fan. it's not like oh my god there's too much blood it's it's the fact of like well when you have so much of it and you have splash all over the screen you can see the texture of it. You can see the thinness of, of, of it and stuff like that. So, again, and also the CGI part of it, some of it wasn't the best CGI. I don't know what their budget for a CGI is. But in certain parts, it really wasn't the best. But, I mean, overall, when I look at, at the show and I, and I look at what they're doing, just the intrigue of it, I, I am intrigued by the show. Uh, I'm kind of – I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of – mad that I have to keep my Star subscription now, <laughs> you know, because it's kind of like, 
oh man, you know, uh, it, it, it's just another streaming service I have to be a part of now because of the show. Well, not the stars doesn't have a lot of good shows. I mean, hey, Outlander's a really good show. They've had other really good shows like uh, White White Princesses and The White Queen has actually been been very very good as well. They've got a lot of good original programming, and I mean, if this is just going to add to it, hard to argue with that, right? Oh yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying, just like you know, I'm like. <laughs> There's just so many streaming platforms. There's so many. <laughs> what you're saying is it's another $9 that you wish you didn't have to spend, but now you probably are going to. Yeah, I'm not saying because of, like, I wanted the show to be bad. I'm just saying that, like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, again, I don't want the show to be bad. It's just more of just like, well, there's another $9 I'm going to be soaking into to a streaming service. Ah, but think of all the movies and stuff you'll get as well. So... So why not expand the horizons of your of your already just blooming catalog of digital entertainment options? But uh, I don't think we can avoid talking about this any longer. I think yeah, you know what talking about of course the the scene people are talking about, of course, is the famous sex scene, of course, with Bilquis and. Okay, so in the comic version, because I know this was a this was a book and it was translated to comics recently by Dark Horse, which James and I have read. Um. Her vagina, in the end of the first issue of the comic, becomes a giant Venus flytrap to where you see the man being sucked in. And with this, I want to say this, of all the sex scenes I've seen on television, (laughs) I know that sounds so perverted, but it's true. Hey, you watch seven seasons of the Game of Thrones, you're bound to. That's right, that's right. Bound to see a lot of tits and ass, I'm just going to say that. (laughs) But, uh... With with all that, this first episode really, I think, nailed that scene because you want to talk about the importance of a great director of photography and a great cinematographer and camera person. I mean, this shows the importance of that because all the camera tricks, all the ways they did it was just amazing in that scene. I'm like, wow, you really pulled that off without traumatizing me. Right, and the comic did that. I was oh. traumatized as hell by the comic. <laughs> Your face. Can we just describe your face when we were reading the book, and we were both we both had our books out at the same time, and I'm looking over James' face, and he gets to the end before me, and his jaw just drops. He's like, oh, oh my god! <laughs> Literally, reverse Venus flytrap or vagina flytrap. If you want to go that matter. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad, but I will say bravo for the way they did it on the show. <laughs> it was a lot less scary. But still very, very effective and, and got the point across. And but, but you know what? Going back to the whole fake blood thing, learn from that scene what you should be doing with that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, you, you executed what was the necessary part of the story without having to completely overdo it and have the giant vagina envelop this dude. Instead, you know, he just kind of got smaller. That was kind of one way to do it. So, you, you know, learn from that and do that. And adapt that to some of the other things because I think th- there's your sweet spot right there, you know? That's what you need to do. <laughs> there's nothing sweet about that spot. <laughs> Not that particular spot. Not from her. At all. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it the entire time. Oh, God. Well, before, we can't really give our, our ratings on us, but let's just do it this way. Instead of giving like a, a one out of whatever or a ten out of whatever, let's do this. 
are we going to watch further episodes? So how far are we going to give it? Let's just do that. I'll start with you. All right. Well, like you said, I'm intrigued. The one thing I do hope that we get and soon is more development out of Shadow Moon. I want to see more from him. I want to see it kind of, you know, I want to see things kind of progress a lot more than they did in this first episode. Maybe give him a little bit more personality. I know that's not necessarily part of his character, but at the same time, he's still the main character of the show, and I need a little bit more, because I need to care more about him, and right now, I don't as much. I'm in this more for the, where's the Mr. Wednesday thing going? Where's the Mad Sweeney thing going? And this technical boy, I guess is what they're calling him on the show and in the books. Where is this all going? And, and you know, even with Bilquis, where does she come into all of this whole story? So I'm more interested in, you know, I don't really want to call them the secondary characters, but not the main character of the show. I'm more interested in them than anything else. So I want more from Shadow Moon. And if I get that in the coming episodes, then I think I'm all in. But yeah, I'm definitely still interested to keep watching the show. I'm also very much interested in this show. How many episodes am I going to give it? I'll probably end up giving it a full season because, again, it's that eight-episode season that really makes me like, okay, is this going to be like a 22-episode or 13-episode season where I'm going to have to really sink into this thing? And, you know, at the end of the first season, we'll, you know, revisit this or whatever and, and, and you know, one way or another and just say, hey, are we going to go on season two or not? And a couple of characters I'm interested in seeing, of course, I'm interested in seeing Mr. World played by Crispin Glover. I'm also interested in seeing Orlando Jones as Mr. Nancy and how he's going to um, kind of come to the fray as well. So that's going to be really interesting. Again, I do want to stress what you just said, James, about Shadow Moon. I don't want it to be, I want more of a reason for the, to care about him as a character. I want some interesting things about him outside of, you know, I think the cheapest thing that people can do with characters is make you feel sorry for them because their wife died or their husband died or whom somebody somebody close to them died or whatever. Give me a, a bigger reason to really care for him and really flesh him out more as a character. And this, the one thing I don't want to see is as much as I love Mr. Wednesday and Mad Sweeney, I don't want to see a main character be kind of engulfed by his surrounding cast and overshadowed by his surrounding cast. So hopefully further on down the road where we'll see, you know, Shadow Moon step into his own and kind of, pull back the spotlight from some of these characters, at least stay, stand even with them. Uh, and that's something I, I hope to see more. But, yeah, I'm, I'm so in for this first season. I can't wait to see how it goes. Yeah, and start explaining some of the weird stuff sooner rather than later. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. like the overly weird stuff you guys know what well, I'm talking about if you've seen the show. Well, I think with Brian Fuller, again, I think we're because it's, you know, again, you read gaming, you're going to get that slow totally. burn. With Fuller, though, for what we've seen in his first episode, he's kind of kicking it up a notch to a higher gear, which I like. I think it's going to also draw more of an audience as well, especially the people who have not read the book or the comics. Uh, and it's going to keep them interested because you want to keep that nice pace. You don't want to go at a, at a sluggish pace. You don't want to be Walking Dead Season 2. Right, that's what I'm hoping for. And that's going to do it for our discussion of American Gods. And you can catch it every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on Stars. We'll come up next... We have a bunch of nerd news to get to, including the Eisner Awards and who was snubbed. Stay tuned. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, James, it's time we go around the internet and see what's trending because it's time for what? Nerd news! And our first story, I teased it in the last segment. 
We're talking about the Eisner Awards and the nominations that recently came out this week. And James, let's just tell our listeners right now that a good part of the nominations kind of has a bit miffed. Yeah, and I want to preface our discussion by saying that we are in no way saying those who got nominated didn't deserve to be nominated. I mean, congratulations to everyone that was nominated for for the Eisner Awards. You've done great, great work as well. But at the same time, you know, it's just like the Oscars, just like the Grammys. You, you kind of look at nominations and you go, uh, there seems to be something missing here. But in this case, this year, to me, there seems to be a lot missing. Yeah, and a lot by, I would say, just DC Rebirth books in general, because I look at Best New Series, you know, you have Deathstroke Rebirth in there, but again, I reviewed the first issue when it came out a while back, and I talked about how, you know, coming off of the one prior to that, that was part of New 52, I didn't really get that same sense of excitement, that same sense of this is as good as a series as the last one that came previous to it. I look at this now, and I'm like, really, you couldn't put Wonder Woman there, Batman, Green Lanterns, you know, there's a bunch of other DC Rebirth books, Superman, for example, that could have been part of this, you know, and it, and it it's not. And you know what the funny thing is, I mean, you keep going on, like, something like Detective Comics and Action Comics, that jumps off the page, literally. I mean, you look at a list of nominations, you see Action Comics in there. I mean, just what's been done, I mean, we've talked about it at length. I mean, even with people that we've had on the show about how great DC Rebirth, how great of a job they've done, and and you know, bravo for De- for uh, for Deathstroke being nominated. But at the same time, it's like I'm not saying that they should have swept the category or any other categories. But how the hell were some of these other books not in there? And I mean, you want to go to the art, Liam Sharp and Nicholas Scott. Let's just talk about them for a second. For Wonder Woman, where the hell? Are they in these nominations? And Nick, this doesn't just go to DC. I mean, there's some other publishers as well that were like, where the hell are these great artists? Well, for example, when you look at the when I look at the best writer slash artist category, which is pretty much the person, I believe it's the person who did both the writing and the art for it, uh, where is Gene Ha's May series? Where's Matt was, Wagner? Right. Exactly. Where you know, and it's just I don't get it. I really don't because, like, when you look at May, for example, and just the art style that Gene did and how different it was, and I think how much of a game changer it was in terms of art, it was amazing. It was a beautiful blend of 2D and 3D art, and it's just – it was so well done. The writing of it, this whole mix of fantasy and, and sisters and everything like that, and this whole world, it, it, it's just – it was amazing. And for to not see it be – nominated for an Eisner, I think it's really heartbreaking for somebody like me. And I know for you, you know, we had Gene on the show. It's just this, this amazing series just isn't being recognized. Speaking of amazing series not being recognized, I mean, think about this. Think about a guy like Fico Asio and Revolution and, and oh, yeah. what he's continuing to do. And I mean, even his work before that. And I mean, I'll, I'll go with Carlos Magno as well for Kong Skull Island. I know some of this stuff came out in 2017, so maybe not necessarily eligible for this year's Eisner's as far as like Kong Skull Island, for example, or, or even parts of Revolution. But these guys have been doing this and presented some amazing, amazing work. And where the hell is the recognition for that? I mean, I, I just it just boggles my mind. I mean, congratulations. I mean, I'm glad that a guy like a uh, guy like Rafa gets recognized for for Batgirl. But where's the love for Batgirl and the Birds of Prey for uh, Julie and Shauna Benson? Exactly, man. And that's and that's but the that's, thing. I know too. that's writing, but still. Right, but but it's you're, it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I another 
DC Rebirth book. I mentioned to his Aquaman, Dan Abnett, for writing. I mean, when he did with Aquaman, making him an enemy of the state, that whole first arc with Black Manta and Aquaman, the whole war between you know Atlantis and, and Earth, how they're close to just annihilating one another, was really great writing. And I look at just some of these nominations, and again, nothing against the people who are nominated, but I felt like there were just, you look at this list, and I feel like there's just so many... Uh, important books and so many important pieces of work that are missing in this. And, and and that's across the board publishers. Like, like I feel like maybe Joyride should have got some love. I think Joyride in terms of writing, I think Colin Jackson should definitely have been nominated. You know, I mean, issue 12, I just read that, which was the final issue. And it was amazing. Like it was amazing. And, you know, I want to say this, I'm looking at the, nominees for you know the best one shot single issue how is jeff johns's rebirth one shot not part of this that launched Mm -hmm. this entire this whole rebirth you know startup this whole rebirth initiative and that's made dc and brought them back and has made them you know for a good while jump ahead of marvel in terms of sales and everything else you know where Mm -hmm. is that now i'm not saying that dc needs to be in every category but when you have something as successful as rebirth it's hard not to see like okay you know it's it's at least in one in almost every category at least at least one book in almost every category you know for fuck's sake if la la land can have like a thousand nominations (laughs) why can't dc have more than a few, more than a few, you know what I'm saying? And, and not only that, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be a dick here, but I'm going to discuss one of the elephants in the room and that, you know, one of the criticisms of the Oscars that people have had for so many years, and, and you being a film guy, I know that it, it's a little different for you, but a lot of people, not that the most popular and best-selling movies should always be nominated for Oscars just because they made a lot of money and stuff like that, because that doesn't necessarily translate into good movies, but... A lot of these nominations are from books that the main, you know, the the general public and even certain comic book fans have no idea what the hell these books are. And maybe that's maybe that's what the Eisners are trying to do. Maybe that's the point for them. It's like, here, let me shine a light on these because these are good books. So let's make sure that they get nominated instead. And really quick, I'm going to touch on that. I think it's more of kind of like you want. It's like when you see the best picture nomination, but then you have like that one like odd indie or that odd foreign movie that's in there that's like you, you say to yourself well how is this in there i think that's what they want to do i think maybe they want to expand on that more but then again nothing against the publishers or artists or writers is like if not a lot of people have seen these small time books i don't think they should be really be in it at least given their own category yeah you know, there's gotta be yeah there's gotta be a way to do that and our next story james deals with HBO and of course Game of Thrones is a big big show we all know that's coming back soon I'm all caught up I'm not sure if you are but HBO wants to keep that gravy train rolling as they have, have announced four separate spin-off shows are, are coming yeah and there's gonna be two of them that are gonna be at least having George R.R. R. Martin involved two of them though not so much, but I mean, you've got writers like Max Borenstein, who worked on Kong Skull Island Minority Report, which is a very interesting mix. You've got Jane Goldman, who did Kingsman Secret Service and X-Men First Class. And then of course, you've got Brian Helgeland, who did A Knight's Tale and L.A. Confidential. And then Carly, Wa- Carly Ray, excuse me, that did Mad Men. So a nice eclectic mix, but how do you feel about the fact that George R.R. R. Martin's not necessarily going to be involved in all of these 
first of all, I don't know where he has the time to do anything right now, you know. Uh, but my thing is, with him not being involved, I don't think it's as big of a deal as people want to make it out to be because ever since, I believe this past season or, or I mean, the season before that, they went away from the books because they literally covered all the books that were right. out. So, like, we can't go any further. So since they broke that tie, I don't see a big deal with it. I believe in, you know, what they want to do with this. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. I think these these could be shows that are spinoffs of what happens after Game of Thrones is over, the main series is over. I, however, think that when you look at the, the families and the, the kingdoms that are involved in the show, I think it's be more of a prequel show. And at least some of them I think would be, be prequel shows, kind of like Howling the Mad King and uh, you know House Lannister and everything that happened with the Targaryens and stuff like that. So I think a couple of them, maybe not all, are going to be prequel shows, but if you want to do make these all prequel shows... And make these to show how we got to this, you know, Game of Thrones of season one with Stark and everything like that. By all means, do that. My only fear is, and this has to do with a show like Fear the Walking Dead, are they spinning off shows just because of money reasons and just because it's it's you know it has doesn't have the possibility of becoming too much of a good thing? Yeah, and I when Entertainment Weekly broke this story, one of the first things I thought was prequel. At least one of these has got to be a prequel. And it's going to be hard to tell, like you said, because they've gone off the books at this point, it's going to be hard to tell how this is really going to end because Game of Thrones has been one of the most unpredictable shows on television (laughs) during its run. So it's hard to know until it ends where they could take a continuation of this. But I think, you know, House of Lannister is a great point. That was one of the first things that I thought of is and how that uh, all gets brought up and and the uh, House of Daenerys, Targaryen, all that family, how that happened. And, you know, the the story, the the lore of the dragons when we eventually got that thing, you know, how how did that whole thing all get started. Maybe we get a little bit of backstory on that. There's a lot of things you can do, um, but I am a little bit worried, like you are, that it's maybe a money grab, and maybe they're thinking because it's the most successful series that they've ever had on HBO that they want to just kind of do what a lot of companies are doing right now, and that's beat it to death. Well, and that's the thing, too, is, is when are you stretching the, the this franchise too thin? You know, doing a spinoff is fine. Doing a couple of spinoffs is great, but four altogether. Now, I don't think they're going to release them all at once. And who knows? Maybe this could be something where one leads into another, leads into another sort of thing, which is how that's how I kind of picture it happening. But again, it's it's stre- how far can you stretch this, and and can you make it interesting? Because what makes Game of Thrones interesting is you're getting this overlook of all these separate kingdoms and all yeah. these different lands and how they're coming together and stuff like that and how they're fighting with one another and their differences and their similarities. Whereas with this, okay, you want to focus on one thing or one family or one kingdom, that's fine, but how long are you going to do this? You know, you, I don't think you, can, you, can you do four seasons of Lannister history? I don't think so. You can't do four seasons with the Mad King. So if you want to do, like, one, kind of maybe make these, like, limited series in a sense, like one eight-episode season each, that's fine. I think that that might be what they're thinking, or maybe a couple seasons, but you know as well as I do, and, and this speaks to, directly to the Fear, Fear the Walking Dead. If it ends up being successful in its first season, it's going to probably get a second season just based on money alone. And, and it's funny how people demand things because something is so good 
but then they don't realize that the next thing that they get could be a giant steaming pile it, of garbage. Well, what happens is when you when people like something, you know, of course you have sequels and stuff like that and spin-offs that are made, but what you do is also people don't realize that you're also kind of diluting in a sense right. the property and the stories and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. So, I hope that that's not what they do. I think that is a good idea, and you know, if they want to do a continuing series, fine. If they want to do a continuing, you know, two continuing series and maybe two prequel series, if you want to break it up like that, I, I guess that could be possible. But all of it's going to depend on exactly which stories they choose to do and how the hell the show's going to end, which I think is anybody's best guess at this point. And James, moving on, we're going to talk about some trailers because my God, was this a week for trailers? We had three of them. We're going to talk about this week, and we're going to start off, of course, with I think was the biggest one, which was Marvel's The Defenders. Yeah, and I like how what we get right off the bat is how they're meeting each other and how they're coming together. And, you know, you see Matt Murdock going in with uh, with uh, Misty Knight and Jessica Jones saying, I'm your lawyer kind of thing, and that's how they meet. And you see how Iron Fist and Luke Cage meet. And, I, and then, of course, by the end of the trailer, you see them all together. But I like that they kind of gave us those little pieces of, of okay, here's how the world's going to interconnect, and they did it really, really quickly. And also, from what I'm looking at on IMDb, is that this looks to be probably one of the shortest uh, series that Marvel and Netflix has put out because what I'm seeing is eight episodes a piece. It looks like, and and that's the thing I kind of like is that you're kind of you know what was the problem with I think a, not every one of these Marvel shows, but just some of them is that yeah you could have probably cut off a couple episodes, made them not as long. But going back to what you said, I like how we're getting these dynamics and this whole team dynamic. I'm not gonna lie, when I saw Charlie Cox, you know Matt Murdock walk into the interrogation room and meet Jessica Jones for the first time, I'm like, I, I got happy. I got really happy. Yep. Yeah, me too. You know, and now we're going to see that dynamic with, with Danny Rand, you know, and Iron Fist and Luke Cage and the whole thing that they have, their whole Heroes for Hire per- stuff and everything. And I, I will say this, I'm excited about this because hopefully, at least just from the, gi- the gist I got of this is that, this looks to be hopefully that rebound from the disappointment that was Iron Fist. Because when you see Finn Jones in that team mold, what will we talk about with our review? Iron Fist works when he's with a team. He's got somebody to, to work off of in terms of Luke Cage or somebody else. And he became one of those people you're like, oh, he works, it looks like. And at least in this trailer, oh, he works in this dynamic because, wow, he punched Luke Cage. Yeah. You know, you know he, he and it with the Iron Fist, and he bent his face. So it was pretty... Pretty interesting. Of course, you're going to have Electra coming back, so we're going to see what kind of uh, role she plays. You know, she's the anti-heroine, so who knows? Maybe she's going to be bad and turn good later on. Of course, Sigourney Weaver plays Alexandra, who is the main villain in all this. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they do. Now, I will say this. I don't know if you're the same way, dude, but I might be in the minority in this, but I'm so over the hallway fights. Oh, I know. And as much as I loved them in the beginning, uh, now you're now you're overdoing it because you know people like it. And that goes just that goes back to our discussion from from just a couple minutes ago. You, if people lost their shit over this so many times on social media through so many shows that now you're throwing now you're throwing them in on purpose where it was a cool thing that would just kind of show up and you wouldn't see it coming. Now not only do you totally see it coming, they're in the trailers now. So I think we back away from that. I think that this is also going to be from, from the vibe that I'm getting in this first trailer, and I'm not sure how Sigourney Weaver fits into this yet. I think this is going to be our fail, farewell to the hand. This is going to be the final battle oh, in yeah. New York with the hand, and I think this is where 
We move on from the hand, and that's where we move on to, like, the Punishers. The next season of Jessica Jones, and I'm sure the next season of Daredevil as well. So I think this is going to be our farewell to the hand, because I don't want the hand to turn into the Hydra of the Right, exactly. And that's what I was about to get to, is I don't want it to be where the hand is the Hydra thing. I want it to be where I love Peter Shinkoda. I love, you know, the way that they've done the hand, but... I don't want him to become the next Brett Dalton. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't want not, that, not that he's not a good looking man too. But no, uh... no, it's just I don't want no. I just I don't want them to go the route with the hand as they done with Ward and stuff like that and Hydra because it's gotten pretty old by now. Yeah, and it's dangerous because I understand that that's been that's been good storytelling. There's been a lot a lot of good stuff going on there, but. Uh... Yeah, you got to back away from that eventually. But, I mean, I got a good vibe from this trailer. I wasn't, like, falling out of my chair, excited over it. I thought it was a good introduction. I don't think it's one of those trailers that's supposed to blow you away right off right off the get. But I think the dynamic looks pretty good so far. Switching up streaming services as we're going from Netflix to Hulu. We got our first taste, and it was a brief taste, about 43, 45-second taste of Marvel's Runaways. Yeah, and I mean, there wasn't a, really a whole lot, and it was kind of a leaked trailer that got removed yeah. <laughs> pretty darn quickly, but I mean, the little piece we did get, now, now quite honestly, this wasn't much. I mean, it was best, just basically an introduction to, to the group and what's going to be going on, so I mean, you got to see some of the basic, I mean, you got to see Nico Minoru, who's going to be the main character in the show, you got to see Molly Hayes, and you know, a lot of these young, a lot of these youngsters that kind of you know, if you know the story of the Runaways, actually discover that they have powers after sneaking into a party that their parents have once a year and finding out, oh, they're part of an evil, evil gang organization called the Pride. And I just want to say right now that I'm so happy for our friend Brittany Subashi, who's a part of the show. And of course, it's coming out winter of 2018. And yeah, man, I mean, this is interesting because now Marvel, I'm not going to lie, I think the Runaways, I haven't really read the Runaways. But it seems like Marvel or TV, they're not afraid to do more of a deep dive with their properties. I mean, you got to give this story its due because when Brian K. Vaughn and Adriel Alfona created this thing back in 2005, they, they won an Eisner for this in 2000. And when they created it in 2003, they won an Eisner for it eventually. So, I mean, this story def- definitely has its, its, its credibility. There's no question about that. And, I mean, you know, you're almost combining the best parts of everything, right? I mean, you've got mutants, witches, aliens, you know, telepaths and all that stuff, you know, finding out you have all these different powers. So it's almost kind of like an X-Men, but not. And then you've got younger kids involved. It's almost like Marvel's version of Teen Titans in a way. I, I kind of like that comparison. It is like kind of like the Marvel's versions of Teen Titans because you look at it, just the kids that are there. And how they're kind of, you know, again, they want to atone for their parents' actions, so they want to discover also the secrets of their origins. So it's going to be interesting to see how and what kind of dynamic they they go with. And it's going to be really, really awesome. It looks pretty, pretty interesting. It looks kind of like not really something you would see on Freeform, but like a more mature Freeform show, if I could put it in that way, especially when we saw the Cloak and Dagger trailer. Yeah, and from the little tease we got, it looks like the effects are going to be pretty good. I mean, I don't think they're going to be off the charts good because, I mean, we know the Hulu has the cash, but we don't know exactly how much they're throwing into right. this, even though it's a Marvel property. So it looks like the effects will certainly be good enough. But you didn't really get, I mean, you look at the cast and, you know, there's a lot of names that you don't necessarily recognize on here, but you don't really get a sense of how they're going to be because of the look that we got. And our final trailer deals with the Dark Tower series, of course. The first trailer for the Dark Tower came out, and 
I will say this. When I first watched the trailer, my initial thought was, this can go one of two ways. And I thought back to a movie I really, really enjoyed, and it came out when I was in college. It was called The Book of Eli, of course, with Denzel Washington. And really good movie. And I looked at it, and I'm like, this can go one of two ways. I like that, of course, they got the whole gunslingers. could be the bringing back of Westerns. I love Westerns. My grandfather you know, was reason I loved him so much because he brought me up on them. Mm-hmm. It can go one of two ways. It can be as good as the Book of Eli, or this could turn into another, because remember, this is a, also a gunslinger and fantasy element. This could turn into another Cowboys versus Aliens. Yeah, and it, there were some points in this, dude, where I'm not going to lie. I'm looking at some parts of this trailer, I'm like, is this a Jason Statham movie? What's <laughs> right? going on here? I mean, th- there were parts of it where you're like, whoa, and then there's parts of it like, that doesn't look good at all. I mean, I was... I can't remember the last time I was so hot and cold on a trailer in two and a half minutes. I think in a long time, because there are parts of it that I'm like, oh, that's awesome, and then parts of, parts of it are like, oh, this could suck. And that's the thing, too, is I will say the parts where, of course... Idris Elba play, is playing Roland, a.k.a. the gunslinger. He's putting the bullets in the chamber. The stuff that they do with the gun, with the CG and everything else like that, like, that looks pretty cool. Like, yeah. I'm like, okay, it looks awesome. Now, here's where a lot of my confusion is going to this was, at least more of my concern was. And we talked about this a while back when Idris Elba was first cast. I said, I didn't really get the casting because there's, you know, in the first book, you have the whole thing with Susanna and how she is someone who has split personalities, and there are serious racial tones early on in the series between her and Roland. So I'm like, well, that's going to be kind of, you know, how are they going to do that? And it's going to be kind of interesting. But now that I found out, hey, they're, they're skipping that first book, so they're cutting out Susanna, and it also looks like they're cutting out Eddie Dean, who is, of course, the protege to Roland. He was also mm-hmm. a recovering heroin addict, and they're going right into the second book, uh, which is which is called the drawing of the three. So I'm like, okay, so you've bypassed it. So now it's gotten to a point where I'm like, okay, Idris Elba playing Roland and the gunslinger. That was my main concern because yeah. that was a big part of the story. So I'm like, okay, now my main concern is gone. But as you mentioned, I was very hot and cold on this because in a sense, you bring the whole kid dynamic in there. We've seen it a, lo- a bunch of times. You know, we've seen it in Last mm-hmm. Action Hero. We've seen it in a, you know, kid goes to a different world. We saw it in Tomorrowland, you know, and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, it could be one of those things where this movie just came out too late. I think it is. And I think that you gave two extremely good examples of bringing a kid into another world where it actually worked. And it, and it just, in that bottle, it just worked. Last action here on Tomorrowland. I know that a lot of people didn't like Tomorrowland. We did. I think both of those instances that, that, that worked. And I think that it'll be very interesting to see how they pull it off here. And the other thing that kind of had me worried was I, I found myself in the scenes with Idris Elba and the gunslinger. That's the scenes I seem to find myself most excited about. I don't know if it's because I'm with you. I'm a big fan of the Western world as it is. So I'm very big fan of Western. So maybe it drew me in more, but Matthew McConaughey is the man in black. There were times I'm like, okay, yeah, he's doing pretty well. And then there's other times that I know it's only a two and a half minute trailer where I'm going, ah, I don't know, man. I don't (laughs) know if he's going to be able to pull this off. And I know that he's very much past the all right, all right, all right stage. I know that he's not really that dude anymore, but at the same time, I'm like, I just don't know if I buy this from him. I don't know. And I look at this trailer, and again, my thing is just, I want it to be good, but again, it's just one of those things where there was just some parts where, you know, they talk about the whole, well, the Dark Tower falls, and, you know, the two worlds merge. And that's something I'm kind of getting kind of a little 
not, exhausted by is I'm getting exhausted by there's always there's like this one obelisk or this one item or, or whatever that keeps these two worlds from merging. And if it's broken or destroyed, then the two worlds merge. you got to save the two worlds or the multiple Earths. And it's like we've seen it a lot. You know, look at the MCU. <laughs> you know, look at, at mm-hmm. just some of these other movies we've seen where they had to do with saving the world. And if you don't save one world, then another multiple Earths get destroyed or whatever. Like, it's just, I'm kind of burnt out by it. And again, I think that, to be honest, like, I, again, I want the movie to be well because it comes out on August 4th and we're going to see it. But my, my take is this could be a movie where it either – it's one of those things where it just came out way too late or it's just one of those things where, man, maybe this would have been better as a Netflix show or a Hulu show or an Amazon Prime show, you know? TV is the first thing I thought of, actually, when I was looking at this trailer. I was like, maybe this should have been a TV show. Well, and, I mean, could you imagine what they could have done with that or even an HBO, Star, Showtime, whatever? And you draw this out over several seasons and, man, you, you've got something. You could do a lot of these effects there, too. Well, and here's the thing, too, is that it's it, my, my big worry about something like the dark tower is that it's eight books. So you're going to be cramming in eight books into one movie or at least a couple of movies. Like that's still a lot. Yeah. Whereas with TV, you can have more time to, and I know another reason why they're skipping the first book is because it's just so dense. Like it's such a dense book. And so you could kind of spend a season on that first book or maybe a season and a half and just go from whatever to whatever and kind of keep the story going and so it's just one of those things where my, my biggest fear is, is cramming so much. And again, I, you know, a series that people point to is Lord of the Rings. And yeah, those books were big, but they found a way, Peter Jackson found a way to condense yep. those books into, you know, three hour movies, basically, you know? And it's not like you're going to get a, you know, longer version. You're not, it's not like you're going to get the extended cut like you did with Lord of the Rings of the Dark Tower because you're already skipping the first book. And then, you know, what else do you end up having to skip just to find, just to get it in? Maybe they don't cram it. Maybe they just keep skipping stuff. And then that opens up a whole other list of problems. But again, back to your point of maybe this movie's just coming too late and it's going to get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, man. But hey, that's going to do it for Nerd News. But coming up next, oh boy, do we have a great guest this week. Of course, we're going to be talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but not just with anybody. One of the co-creators, that's right, Kevin Eastman, is stopping by the podcast to discuss Free Comic Book Day and, of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Hey, guys, this is IDW senior staff writer and editor Tom Walt, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, I think if there's one franchise that's both near and dear to mine and Nick's heart, it's got to be those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so... Imagine how excited we are right before Free Comic Book Day to have this guy on the show with us. I think you might recognize the name. It's Kevin Eastman. How you doing, man? I am doing fantastic, gentlemen. Happy uh, Wednesday to you guys. Absolutely. And, hey, we've had a lot of guests from the Turtles world on our show. I mean, even Tom Waltz has been on the show before. So whether it's comics, movies, or an animated series, anything else you've got going on, what are the qualities that are most important for anyone who's working on a world that you, you helped co-create? Well, you know, I first off, you know, I was I, I always love to say that I want to be Tom Waltz when I grow up. Uh, I love Tom Waltz. Uh, he's just a wonderful uh, writer, wonderful craftsman. Um, you know, the team we get to work with on uh, on the IDW series, you know, Bobby Kernow is we call him the editor, but he he has as as many wonderful creative ideas and input to the story. Helps us keep you know the plot focus and all that stuff. But Tom, you know, basically does all the work. I take all the credit. Ha ha ha. <laughs> um, 
But, uh, you know, what I love so much about this series, besides getting to work with these guys, is the artists that we get to work with, whom I, um, you know, Mateus, uh, uh, Sophie Campbell, uh, uh, Corey Smith, you know, there's so many to name, and I, I love them all dearly, but I also hate them because they all draw better than I draw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's been a, it's been a wonderfully, uh, it's been a great experience. I can't believe you know we're already rocketing towards issue 100. Uh, I think Tom, I, I saw Tom yesterday, and he just finished writing 73, issue 73, and and you know we've got solid plans up through 100, and uh, um, and that's something I always uh, thank and blame the fans for. I appreciate all the support for the series because it's it's really an awesome awesome series. You know, and, and speaking of the fans. You know, you co-created the Turtles of Pure Laird back in 84, so 33 years later, what's something about the Turtles, their lore, and just the fans that still amazes you to this day, Kevin? Well, you know, that's that's really it. I mean, you know, I always take it back to, um, you know, when we did the first issue, um, we were pretty sure that we wouldn't even sell sell out of the 3,000 copy press run that we first did for issue one. Um, and when the fans um, started buying it, and they just kept buying it, <laughs> and it kept, you know, kind of going and going, and you know, every turtle experience from the you know the comics to the movies to the, um, you know, the different entertainment versions, um, you know, I guess it it felt like because we've tried to analyze it, <laughs> and it's just ludicrous. Um, it's 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 amazing. It's humbling. It's um, fantastic. Um, it's it's a dream of a lifetime. You know, we. We dreamed of being Jack Kirby when we were kids and, and, and just make a living doing comic books, and we are. Um, but I feel like, you know, Peter and I and, and many other artists, because um, I even call Tom Waltz, um, you know, the Turtles' adopted dad. He's like the stepdad. It comes down <laughs> to the, the, you know, the family aspect, I guess. You know, they're misfits, they're mutants, um, and they're Turtles. But it's a, it's a solid family unit. They bicker, but they love each other, and they always have each other's back. Splinter is a great father figure that puts them through the paces, and they've got kind of a nice relationship with you know april who's our sister figure and then the crazy oddball cousin which we call casey jones but i think it's that misfit family that is really the heart and soul of of all good good turtle stories and as long as you know that's there in whatever version whether it's a cartoon show or one of the movies or things and especially the the comics i think if that's there then i i think that's what the fans resonate uh to or relate to the, the best the most Speaking of how fans kind of resonate with the characters, I mean, there's been so many supporting characters with the Turtles over the years. You mentioned some of them j just now, and there are heroes and villains. So I can't help but wonder, was there a character that you were unsure about at the time that ended up gaining way more popularity than you expected? Yeah, you know, it, it's always surprising. You know, there's we've had characters, you know, as, as silly as, like, you know, Ace Duck and some of those that some fans really dislike. Um, Venus de Milo seems to be one of the fan favorites that everybody hates. I never minded that much. I thought there were some good stories. But even, you know, uh, like, out of the IDW series specifically, uh, Alloplex uh, is the, you know, the, the fox, the white fox that we created for this series. Um, we loved her as a character. Um, she kind of came in as a supporting character for one of our story arcs. And the fans just went nuts, um, uh, especially, I think, you know, not only her as a character, her in a role in the in the Turtles universe, but Sophie Campbell drew all those original issues with Alaplex, and I think fans really exploded. And that particular character has gone out of the creation in the IDW comics and on to, she'll be in some of the Nickelodeon uh, animated series, and, you know, uh, uh, which I believe they're going to make a toy out of her and things like that. So that was... That was a, a great one. But what I love, I think, 
so dearly about the IDW comics, especially, is that how we're able to, in this platform of stories that we have, that Tom created, that we can pull from different turtle universes, like bringing the neutrinos from, you know, the hot-running teenagers from Dimension X from the cartoon show, or now freedom fighters, you know, fight, you know, battling in an off-world Dimension X uh, war with the Krang, um, Bebop and Rocksteady's, uh, you know, one's got a chainsaw, one's got a giant sledgehammer, <laughs> they're handling and, and take, you know, Rat King, uh, everything we sort of pull in, we, we sort of nudge it and tweak it a little bit to, to fit what, you know, what we fondly call the IDW universe, so... Um. And speaking of the IAW universe, of course, part of Free Comic Book Day is the prelude to Dimension X. And so what to you is the most important about Free Comic Book Day as a whole? And what excites you the most about the prelude and just the five-week Dimension X event that's coming up in August? Because for me, just hearing about this new deadly villain that we're going to be getting, also Krang awaiting trial is pretty exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, Free Comic Book Day I, I love, and, and whenever I can, in fact, this this Free Comic Book Day, I'm going to be with uh, uh, Ultimate Comics over in Chapel Hill um, for a wonderful event. But what I love about Free Comic Book Day is it, it gives the local comic shops, especially, um, uh, the chance to, to try to bring in new readers, you know, people within the neighborhood, in their area. Um, somebody that might have liked comics once and, and kind of has drifted away for their playing with their iPad or their phone or watching too much YouTube or binge-watching something. Uh, the love of reading and, and remembering fondly, you know, the, the, some of their favorite characters. And what um, we've done with IDW in, in past is try to create a unique story for our free comic book um, comic, but also um, give a chance to do a little recap so that it's a great jumping in point, if you will. It sort of tells you, you know, in very, you know, three pages, well, this is what happened and this is what happened and here's where we are now and this takes you into this this next adventure. Um, and we seized on the opportunity to introduce a new character we have called Hakkar, who's uh, an assassin hired by Krang to uh, help deal with those meddling turtles. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's, a re- it's a great jumping in point to the series if you haven't caught the IDW series so far. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a thrilled uh, to be part of the whole event that, you know, again, free comic books for all ages to, to um, share more of the medium we love so nearly and dearly and and spend our whole life doing <laughs> absolutely we're talking to kevin eastman of course the co-creator of teenage mutant ninja turtles He's, of course make sure you get that free comic book day issue prelude to dimension x also issue 69 is on shelves right now now kevin there have been so many big things happening leading up to the 70th issue of the ongoing series and you've even said planned out to 100 but there have also been great crossovers like the Batman crossover going on, the upcoming crossover with Usagi Yojimbo. So knowing all these great and exciting things that are coming, what excites you the most and what is it like seeing all of these amazing crossovers? It's it's beyond a thrill. I mean, when we did the Ghostbusters Turtles crossover, it was one of those that, you know, growing up a huge fan of, you know, the Ghostbusters, you know, films, um, it was like, could this possibly happen? And it did. And, and, and we love doing it as much as um, the fans seem to love uh, um, the books themselves. When we started working on the, the, the Turtles Batman crossover, it was one of those, like, I thought we were getting punked because it was kind of a dream come true. <laughs> 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 you know, I've, I've, done, I've done fan commissions of, you know, years ago of uh, Turtle dresses a as uh, dressed up as Batman or Turtles and Batman posing together. And uh, not only did we have the wonderful James Tinnon, who wrote just such a fantastic story, um, Freddie Williams, who's, you know, one of my new best friends, did such a fantastic job with the artwork that that led to the animated Turtles crossover. And so 
that sort of brings us full circle to one of the things I'm the most excited about this summer, which is obviously <clears throat> reteaming with the amazing and brilliant Stan Sakai. You know, he started in, I think, uh, his first nine-page story in Albedo came out in November of 1984. Turtles was May 1984. And I always tell fans, <clears throat> they were like, oh, how did you meet Stan Sakai? And it was this great thing where... Um, back in the early days, they'd always put the funny animal comics guys in in, in those um, beat up tables next to the the, the restrooms. Animal <laughs> 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 guys over here by the restrooms, and nobody really you know wants to see what you're doing anyway. But fortunately for us, we get to sit next to Stan at a few shows, and and only fell in love with him as a, as a person, such a kind and, and and wonderful person. But his art was just fantastic. So those crossovers uh, were natural, and uh, you know now we're talking. What fifteen years almost, almost twenty years since the since the last crossover. So yeah, I'm so excited to be working with Stan again. And I think the book will be out just before Comic Con. Awesome, awesome. And of course, you know, we you gave a little bit of a mention about the toys a little bit earlier on in the interview, and you know, the turtles, as we all know, just have and continue to have numerous toys throughout the years. They're still coming out to this day. So I know I had a bunch of them growing up. What's one toy you have not seen yet that you would love to see happen? Oh man, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking back to those uh, um, mortified looks from parents back in the early days when the toys came out, and they were—you could just see the this young person waiting to get an autograph from us, and this disgusted adult behind them going, "Do you?" You can read what they're thinking. They're thinking, you know, do you know how much money I spent buying those stupid Ninja Turtle toys? <laughs> <laughs> uh, try to convince him not to use the pizza thrower on the cat, and you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know Leonardo's sword on the way to the restroom in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, I mean, even out of those, it's like there were so many different. Uh, you know, some of my favorites being Star Trek Turtles crossover figures was awesome. The Universal Monsters, um, so many. Um, I mean, I still have sitting in my studio over there is that big android uh, body with the Krang in it. it. Was one of my favorite goofy oh, toys. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, man. Um, you know, I guess right now um, a lot of people don't know, or some people do, is I do the voice of Ice Cream Kitty on the uh, Nickelodeon animated series, and they they've yet to do an Ice Cream Kitty toy. So that's one that's one I'd like to see is an Ice Cream Kitty toy. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make that happen. Different. Yeah, you know, yeah, I had to live with a family of cats for two months to learn how to meow right. For oh wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, we know that San Diego Comic-Con is coming up really, really soon as well. Before you know it, as a matter of fact, you're actually part of something really cool with, uh, with uh, Traveling Stories, which we've talked about on the show in the past. It's actually doing something that can actually meet you at the show. Now, we had Ted Adams on. He talked about how near and dear the cause was to his heart. So what is it like to be a part of what they do, and what's in store for the big winner who meets you at uh, San Diego Comic-Con? Man, you know, it's it's I'm excited. You know, I, I you know, Fortunately, Ted uh, introduced me to uh, to Emily and, and the whole Traveling Stories organization, and I fell in love with it immediately. You know, you know, even back it took me back to some of the earliest days when um, you know Peter and I would work with different libraries and schools to get them, you know, say versions of the Archie comic because teachers were like, you know, I just want my kids to read, and I figured you know comic books um, is a great starting place. If they're reading comic books, they're at least reading something, and it will lead them to other things. You know, I was the same way when I grew up. I was reading tons and tons of comic books, and my dad kept trying to to get me to read real books. And uh, 
Um, and I was like, ah, too many words. Um, but then he gave me Watership Down and The Hobbit and things like that, and it changed my life. Um, so what Emily's doing, especially going out to communities in areas that uh, don't have accessibility to libraries or, or, or books in general, I think her program is wonderful. And we've, we've really thrown all in with them to help as much as, uh, as we possibly can. So we're excited about the promotion for Comic-Con because that place is a madhouse. Um, so it's a once-in-a-lifetime trip out there to to see the show, this experience Comic-Con, and uh, and meet me. I'm probably going to be the, the, the lowest point for them. I mean, after seeing Comic-Con, it's like, oh, oh, and there's Kevin over there doing something. Um, but no, I'll probably show him, uh, <laughs> show him some card tricks or, uh, you know, we'll make waffles. I don't know. Um, no, it'd be fun. You know, to meet. <laughs> Be appropriate to at least have a slice of pizza with him or something. Yeah, there you, know, you go. See, got to get go. that in there. Got to get it I, in there. I'm just picturing Kevin behind his booth, like with kind of like a crock pot or just like a a, a griddle, and kind of like you see at the fair when people like try to sell like these new pans they're selling. It's so like these nonstick pans. Just Kevin's just giving like tutorials and just making waffles and pancakes. <laughs> the and Kevin things. Eastman collection. <laughs> we, should, we, should be like, we could be we could be my own brand of turtle wax on one side, and you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, Kevin. If they're not if they're not sewer manhole cover waffles, I'm gonna be very disappointed. Oh, uh, dude, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like that. Like, yeah, you have that that toaster that puts like Darth Vader's face on your toast or something. Yes, be, yes, um, yes. Fresh, fresh, fresh from the sewer waffles. Oh god. <laughs> uh, you know it reminded me of. We could have some funky, funky ooze colored syrup. Um, oh yes, yeah. oh, yes. Yeah. Kind of like yeah. those, uh, like the like the green syrup, kind of like the green high squeezables from years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they actually, you know what they actually made years ago? They actually made like these Hostess um, pies. Um, it was like you know, like they they made these apple pies and blueberries pies. Well, they made a turtle one that had this green ooze <laughs> filling <laughs> and like green frosting in it, and it looked disgusting and uh it didn't taste that bad but i didn't didn't make a habit out of eating them regularly but i've had fans tell me that they really loved them when they were kids so (laughs) anyway (laughs) you know kevin speaking of of loving things you know a relationship that and rivalry that i really love and all of comics and just all nerddom it's one of my favorites it's the one between of course splinter and the shredder so when you're drawing panels or covers involving them together what's the most important thing you want fans both long time and new to see and understand about who they are both as individuals and as leaders in your as they look at your work well you know it, to me it's 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 important you know cuz they're like the ultimate it's like batman and the joker i mean it's almost like the original good guy with the original bad guy and they've had this long ongoing feud and it, it runs deep and, and and a lot of history to it so i feel like how we approach the stories especially what tom does is is really it's almost like you have to have a really you know, awful and dreadful bad guy to have your hero overcome overwhelming odds to, you know, to, to deal with that threat and to save, you know, themselves, the family, um, which is usually the case in, in humanity. Um, but I love that, you know, that's Shredder was the main bad guy, um, Splinter's foe from the very first issue of the Turtles. And that's, you know, that runs deep, you know, like you said, 33 years. So it really is keeping it in, you know, and keeping it fresh as well. You know, it's, you know, I think we'd probably seen every Batman Joker story possible until Frank Miller did the dark Knight, you know, and then there was this whole other level of like, wow. And, um, so it's for us, I think it's great that we have such a great opportunity, especially in the IDW comic series is that this, this new, again, we call it our own universe 
is to reestablish those old threats and those hatreds and 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 those um, family issues and 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 do them you know proud and keep them familiar but fresh uh, fresh for us and fresh for the fans uh, not drifting too far so but those are fun and I mean you, <coughs> you just made me think of um you know one of my favorite covers over the last year and a half was um you know we were talking about the turtles Batman uh, crossover was to actually do a cover with Batman and Shredder on the same cover was like ah! I can't believe I'm drawing this and they're actually going to publish it Um, right right uh, too much fun Uh, it's amazing and and like Kevin said if you haven't jumped into the Turtles universe from IDW yet you're going to want to do that on free comic book day this weekend get prelude to Dimension X and then that will just lead you right into Dimension X it's going to be coming up you can also grab issue 69 of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the ongoing series while you're there supporting your local shop and of course we're just a few weeks away from issue number 70 and so many great Turtles things that you can involve yourselves in and we're glad to have this guy on this week to talk about it it's Kevin Eastman thank you so much for joining us this week it's been my absolute pleasure. Um, you know, super excited to be out there. I'm, I'm thrilled to be heading over to Chapel Hill this weekend and meet as many fans as possible. And I appreciate you guys getting the word out there because this is a it's a great it's a great event. And it's a great opportunity um, for all of us, and, and we hope that it uh, has the impact and, and uh, we all hope for it. So, very cool. So you know, James, I gotta say this: we've done many interviews on this show, but Kev, the interview with Kevin Eastman, the co-creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, something that was a big part of my childhood. I know part of your upbringing as well, your Jameson's upbringing as well. I just want to say this, man. Interviewing Kevin is like somebody years ago interviewing Steve Ditko or Bill Finger. Like, like It was that huge to me because Turtles have just been a big part of my life, my sister's life, my, my niece's life, my brother-in-law's life. Like Everybody I know is a big Turtles fan. And it's just to get the co-creator of Turtles on here is such an honor and just such an amazing, amazing day for us. It's funny because, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, you and I are 10 years apart and how, you know, it's good because we cover different, you know, gaps of of things that there were different fandoms at the time. But you look at Turtles and it's one of the only fandoms that is cross-generational. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. It seems like one thing that everybody can agree on is how awesome the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is, and that's a testament not just to Kevin and the people that created uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but everybody that he's talked about that he even gushed over Tom Waltz and why wouldn't you? I mean, that has worked on this for years, year after year because that you, it's hard to keep that audience, you know, once people get older or once you've got a new audience coming in. But Turtles has been able to do that year after year, and that's why it's such a great thing to have him on the show this week. I also liked how he talked about he would be at conventions and you'd have the parents walk behind the kids and they're like, do you know how many times my kid took the, the turtle van that shoots the pizzas out of it and shot the cat with it? Like, you know, this thing just transcends, again, 30-plus years. And, you know, that's the thing is that – you have so many fans. I remember, like, my niece, when she was just a little baby, like, when she was just born, she had, like, a Turtles outfit, and it was awesome. Like, you know, it's just, this is something that, you know, it's a fandom, it's a, it's a property that IEW has just been, been just really doing a fantastic job with. I cannot wait for the Dimension X arc to start in August, because, I mean, Krang on trial, we're going to be getting a brand new deadly villain. I mean... And as Kevin said, and as you said, Tom Waltz, you know, writing it as well. I mean, God, it's going to be an amazing, amazing arc. And 
why Free Comic Book Day is so important because oh, yes. you can go to your local shop. Hopefully you're hearing this before Free Comic Book Day. If not, hopefully you already got the prelude to Dimension X on Free Comic Book Day. And like Kevin said, this is a great jumping in point. So if you've got younger readers or like you said, if you're somebody that's just drifted away from comics and you found us and then found Free Comic Book Day, go get these issues. They're free for a reason and they're not bad issues. Normally, these are really important issues that are kicking off a major event like Dimension X. It's going to be coming up. It's going to be huge and this is your way to get on the ground floor so you don't have to be lost when it actually comes up. So Free Comic Book Day is so, so important. Make sure you're going out and supporting your local shops, especially grabbing all those issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles while you're there, by the way. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And thank you so much to Kevin Eastman, the co-creator of TMNT, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for coming on and just talking everything Turtles with us, about to mention X, the free comic book day, traveling stories as well, which is a great charity as well, phenomenal organization. Thanks to IDW as well. And hey, if you want more of us on social media throughout the week after you get your free comic on free comic book day, be sure to hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downandnerdy757. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch at Merck with one arm. Mr. Witham, where can they find you after Free Comic Book Day? I'm at James Ace Witham on Twitter. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. All this information neatly packed in our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find, you know, past issues of TMNT. We'll have those up there for you so you can catch up to the ongoing series and plenty more stuff that's going on with IDW and traveling stories on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. And normally I tell you to practice safe comic book reading, always back on board your comics, but because we had Kevin Eastman on, of course, co-creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we got to do it, James. You ready? Yep, here we go. One, two, three. Cowabunga! Cowabunga!